Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, gentle listeners. This is Zara Burkholz, Silmarillionaire and producer of many of the Tolkien Professor podcasts. In this episode, entitled Things Take a Turn for the Worse, hold on to your seats as we tackle the second half of the tragic tale of the doomed Turin Turambar. Among the fascinating things we discuss this week are the many names of Turin, why, although Turin is the hottest male human in all of history, he is no baron. We compare Finduilus and Luthien, and we discuss free will versus doom in this story. Our hapless hero is loved by all, yet destroys all he touches. Is Turin's tragic story the result of his bad choices or his fate? Sit back, relax if you can, and decide for yourselves. Okay, good evening, everybody, and welcome to this week's session of the Silmarillion Seminar. We all gather with joyous hearts and light spirits to discuss the second half of the horrible, horrendous tragedy of Turin Turambar. Uh, thank you all for joining us. I hope you'll all still be there when we get to the end. Um, actually, I have to say, um, I was less depressed by reading Turin Turambar this time than I think I've ever been before, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, I don't know whether it's something that kind of changes over time or what, but I actually found it not horribly and unspeakably depressing this time. Um, but I know that uh, many people have been uh, have been really struggling with it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I remember one time, in fact, the very first time I ever taught my Tolkien class uh, at Washington College, when we got to tour in Turambar, you know, I, it was this long story, and I really wanted to be on top of it, so I must have read it through like three times before class, um, which was a huge mistake, because when I went into class, I was just like, hey, everybody, I, I don't think I can go on <laughs> anymore. It was really horrible. I was so depressed. But uh, but anyway, um, so, uh, so okay, I, let's... I think we might as well start off with um, the discussion of Turin's names. Uh, we, in our class notes, were kind of going over and discussing uh, discussing peop uh, the names that Turin has. I, I believe he sets the the one-man record uh, for most names of any character in the Silmarillion, that is, that, that, that accrues them. There are some moments, for instance, uh, when we're introduced to Varda early on, however, you know, for, uh, you know, when we're given a whole long list of the names that she has by various peoples in various places. But see, that's cheating, because those are translations and things by different peoples in different languages, um, not the sort of, during different phases of her career, different names being given to her. And, uh, I think that one very sensible distinction, and I'm not sure who in the class uh, introduced this distinction into the list that we were, we've been keeping of Turin's names, um, but uh, one very sensible distinction is the difference between the names that he gives himself and the names that he is given uh, by other people. And um, so actually, I want to start with the names that he gives himself. We talked uh, at last week at some length about his name, Nathan, the wronged, that he gives himself and the way in which we can see that being an a pretty clear expression of his frame of mind when he leaves Doriath. Um, and uh, he calls himself also Gorthal, the Dread Helm, uh, in 
uh, connection to his uh, to the dragon helm of Dorloman, and that, of course, is a very important piece. Uh, that is, the helm is an important piece of Turin's life and of his career, because it is the physical symbol of his position as the heir of Hurin and the king of the men of Dorloman. Not that there are any men of Dorloman anymore, but if there were, he'd be king of them. Um, so it's you know talks about his heritage, and um, and now let's uh, let's. Let's move on down the list here. Uh, do any of you here uh, in the room have any 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 thoughts about about his other names? Uh, we were just at the end of class last time. We got to the moment uh, on his uh, meeting of Gwyndor, or actually soon after that, at the very beginning of this week's reading, um, when he gives himself his new name, Agarwine, son of Umarth, which means blood-stained son of ill fate. Uh, what do you make of this one, and how do you see this as being different? It's sort of there are clearly some similarities and some differences between uh, between Nathan the Wronged and Agarwain, son of Umarth. Um, but there, I mean, there's, there's 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 some similarities and some differences. Any does anybody have any thoughts on 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 those two names, Nathan versus Agarwain? I like the fact that this is sort of a uh, coincidence, Agarwain. Uh, and uh, the similarity between that and the uh, um, the Arthurian knight Agravain, who is uh, also, as my students usually point out, genuinely aggravating as well. He's uh, one of Gawain's sketchy brothers who uh, uh, who helps cause the uh, downfall of uh, the Arthurian court. Um, but uh, so that's actually kind of an interesting, though probably accidental crossover. But Laura, what are you thinking? It's almost like this name, um, he's, he's sort of taking pride in his, uh, his status of being bloodstained and, you know, he's sort of, um, he's sort of reveling in his, in his doom almost, I think, when he gives himself this, this sort of name. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like he's exactly feeling, you know, happy about it. I mean, of course, this is still in his, you know, immediate post-horrible, tragic killing of Beleg uh, phase, and he's, you know, he's gone past his initial grief, um, you know, when he weeps by the shores of Ifrin, but he um, he's still clearly marked by that. And you remember the way that that's introduced, the new name, that is, is when they come to Nargothrond and Gwyndor is about to introduce him and he stops him and instead gives this name. Um, so that one of the one of the kind of dimensions of this, or one of the 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 factors um, in this na- in in this name and this awarding of the name to himself, is the fact that he's trying to conceal his identity. He doesn't want to be announced as Turin, son of Hurin, and instead um, introduces himself as as Agarwine, son of Umarth. And so now I think that basically we can see, therefore, especially. Uh, so our, our attention, therefore, I think, should also be drawn to the significance of the son of there. This is the only time when he gives himself a kind of a compound name. That is, he gives himself a new name, son of somebody else. Uh, uh, another, well, I was about to call it a fake name. That's a little, perhaps a little harsh. Um, um, pseudoname, anyway. Um, but of course... It's also perfectly accurate if we think of his father, Hurin. He is bloodstained, and his father certainly is ill-fated, or rather has been quite explicitly cursed by Morgoth with ill-fate. Um, so it's, on the one hand, 
quite descriptive and accurate um, as a description of both himself and his father. But of course, I think it's also pretty clear that we're to understand this new pseudonym, um, Bloodstained Son of Ill Fate, also in a sort of allegorical sense. Uh, and what I mean by that is the relationship between the two. Um, when you have a, a genuine personification allegory, um, like just to choose to, to take an absolutely random example, even a non-medieval example. Um, when uh, in Paradise Lost, when Satan is coming out of hell and is going up to, to Paradise to start mucking things up, um, he meets sin and death. And we're told that death is the is the that 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 sin is the mother of death. Um, so the relationship between those two transparently allegorical figures, the figure of sin and the figure of death, the maternal child relationship between the two of them um, is supposed to have allegorical significance. That is, by making these two allegorical figures um, related to each other, parent to child, the author of the allegory is making some kind of a, of, of a statement about the relationship between those two abstract ideas, that the one, um, that, that the one conceives and bring, brings forth the other. Um, so similarly here, by calling himself, by giving himself at this moment not just a different name, but a different compound name with the, the, the son of name, he's also suggesting a relationship between his bloodstainedness and his ill fate, right? That his blood step that um his bloodstained son of ill fate. In other words, his ill fate has begotten his bloodstainedness. So he's taking both of those concepts to himself, and he's suggesting a kind of a causal link between the two of them. That I think is another way to understand um, these, because I mean, these names seem even more than the other names to be sort of uh, I, at least kind of semi allegorical. Um, but several of you have. Your hands raised, and I've been just blissfully ignoring you here. Uh, Joe, go ahead. All right. Um, I was going to say it almost seems like a, he's recognizing different things working on him, um, and maybe he did before. But you know, uh, go figure. This is after Gwyndor says he's heard that uh, Morgoth has placed a curse on everyone, and I mean, bloodstained. I kind of look at it. You can almost recognize that as him recognizing that he has blood on his hands. He's done wrong things. But then he's also the son of ill fate, which I thought kind of related to the curse of Morgoth. And it just seems like he's finally kind of put two and two together, like, oh, I'm an idiot. Plus there's something else going on here. <laughs> right. So, um, right. Right. So I just, it seems like his recognition of other things going on and him him really realizing some things, especially just after Gwendor told him that, and they just seem to relate to one another. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, I... I, I I think that you're right to see that we can see both of those things here, both um, that he recognizes his own guilt. I mean, he's recognizing his own blood guiltiness um, for killing his best friend, but at the same time also does, as you say, recognize there's more than just me here going on. Um, uh, yeah, Brandon. All right. Um, it just seems that Turin, I was going to point out that Turin kind of seems to draw strength from these names. If you recall, he kind of he conceals himself with the mask of a dwarf, and he's fierce in battle. From So I think this mask of a dwarf is kind of what he's been doing all along, is putting on the mask of these names and drawing kind of this this strength from this um, anonymous name, this this sort of mythology that he makes up for this identity he makes for himself. And uh, you can recall his, his reaction to Gwyndor um, is is very, you know, it's it's his doom is revealed. My doom is revealed. In a in one sense, yes, but in another way, no. Um, 
But it just it's interesting that he seems to draw strength from names, and names being very important to Tolkien, um, it seems just kind of a weird position we're in as readers. It's like, okay, should we think that names are important or not? Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. No, and that I, it, that's a fantastic connection, Brandon, because you're absolutely right um, that we can see the similarity in his motivations between the assignment of that name to himself and the wearing of the dwarf mask. When he wears the dwarf mask, it's not exactly like, hey, I'll be incognito in battle. I mean, he is known and he's famous and he seems to be perfectly cool with being famous um, and being, you know, and being sort of notorious among the 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 orcs of of Melkor but there is, again that 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 concealment behind a mask is very much what he is attempting to do um and so it's it's inter- i mean i find interesting the fact that we get this sort of interesting combination there with him where on the one hand calling himself bloodstained like i should not i should not be known as my name i should just be called bloodstained is almost like a confession you know i murdered my friend the bloodstained is like that is my identity but at the same time it's also a, an avoiding of uh of of confession an ev- an, an evasion of responsibility because <clears throat> he's trying to conceal his own identity and to escape from the consequences that are attached to himself and to his own name um but but I agree I think that 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 dwarf mask also kind of shows both of those things that on the one hand it conceals his face but on the other hand it's really famous I mean like you see oh look at the the huge tall dude wearing the dwarf mask when you see him on the battlefield you know oh my gosh that's the Mormagill um, and you know who he is from a distance because you can identify him um, by this mask so again you can see both of those things I think working together um, and of course also the mask is what protects him. That, uh, that is, the physical mask, the dwarf mask, protects him from the fire of Glaurung. He, he's the only one who can stand before Glaurung in battle because the dwarf mask protects him. You'll recall in that passage in the Near Knife when we got the dwarves fighting against Glaurung, um, they went into battle with these masks, and they also were the ones who could stand up to Glaurung because they seemed to be protected from Glaurung's fire um, by these masks. So again, the mask, the mask protects him as it seems potentially, in a sense, or at least he believes that the change of name will also uh, protect him. Uh, Matt, go ahead. And uh, thanks, by the way, Matt. I did see, yes, you were the one who subdivided our list, which, as I said, good call. But go ahead. Um, Well, my comments were kind of tangential to the names. If um, Laura had something more directly related to the names, maybe she should speak first. What do you think, uh, 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 Laura? Are you speaking more directly to him? Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, um, I think my defense against depression in this chapter is to, to get annoyed with uh, Torrin. <laughs> if he really wants to hide who he is and, and get away from his fate, why doesn't he just name himself, you know, Sam, son of John? <laughs> you know, he gives himself this, this grandiose... Uh, right, John, son of know, Doe, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and um, you know, I mean, I guess people in grand stories don't do things like that, but um, but uh, you know, it, it sort of speaks to his his pride and his the way he you know he's he's trying to avoid his fate, and yet he just falls into it every every single time. Yes, yes. Oh, and and you are absolutely right. The um, that's a very natural reaction. I think the uh, backlash against Turin. It's one of the reasons I think that. Uh, 
he, as a character, tends to be very unpopular. I think that there are some, many genuinely likable things about him. But as a reader, when you're going through the uh, the 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 really quite draining and exhausting emotional experience of reading this story, it's hard not to take it out on Turin. It's your fault that I'm going through this. Um, so yeah, I think actually that happens with a lot of people. Dave, I want to um, second that. For a guy who who keeps saying, for a guy who ostensibly wants to hide from his fate or from the curse or whatever, he and from the individuals who who are ostensibly agents of that curse, you know, Morgoth, Glaurung, he sure sucks at hiding. He like goes out of his way to create a new identity, you know, um, tells people a new name, moves to a brand new location where nobody knows him, and then goes off and starts winning great battles and creating a name for himself. And it's like, everybody, you know, after a while, everybody kind of knows, you know, this guy and sort of knows what he's like. And so the minute that, like, some new location, some, some, there start to be strange rumors about this great warrior, you know, the Mormagill or whatever, it's like this big tall guy who's great running around with a black sword again. It's like, ah, uh, we know it's you, Torin. <laughs> yeah. You know, you notice this, like, as soon as Glaurung hears rumors, he just automatically assumes, well, that's probably Torin. I mean... Like, like, even if he changes his name, it doesn't really change who he is and the way he behaves. And, and so, you know, even if we assume that he's not responsible for the bad things that happened to him, that there really is a curse or that there are people out to get him, he, he certainly does a pretty good job of inviting them to come and, and try to act on the curse by, by putting himself out there and, um, you know, and, and sort of attracting the attention of the world. Um, you know, that, and that's just setting aside the fact that his actions oftentimes directly, you know, create these circumstances that he leads it to. Yeah, he just, like, he must have just been a horrible, we were discussing the, the chat, he must have sucked at hide-and-seek when he was a kid. <laughs> Yeah, he's 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 like the kid who keeps hiding behind things that are far smaller than he is, right? So that like you know he thinks he's hidden, but he's sticking out all over the place. Um, he's like that, like in the entire the entire forest of Brethel is not large enough to conceal <laughs> Turin. Um, yeah, no, that that makes that makes perfect sense. And you know, and here thinking about especially the connection with the names here, um, I think there there are kind of two things that we need to remember at the same time. On the one hand, that is Gwyndor telling Tor... Because remember when, when, when Gwyndor outs him to Finduilas, right? And says, and by the way, let me just tell you, um, this dude is actually Turin, son of Hurin. And Turin finds out about this because, of course, it gets everywhere because, obviously, like, nobody can keep a secret, apparently, in Nargothron, the hidden fortress. And, um... Anyway, so it gets out, and Turin's mad, and he goes in and confronts Gwyndor, and you'll recall that Gwyndor tells him the doom is not in you, it's... It's not in your name, it's in you, right? Um, so, look, it's... And, and Dave, that very much goes along with what you're saying. But, you know, one thing that I was thinking about here, too, I do think that his name is important. I think his name is significant. Um, I even think that it's significant that he gives... He tells his own name, um, his own real name, to Glaurung when he confronts him. Um, you know, he's, he's not afraid of him and, and, and reveals his own name and says who he is. And I'm not sure that that doesn't give Glaurung some power over him. Recall, I'm uh, writing my Hobbit book uh, right now, and I've actually been working on the uh, Smaug chapters 
Um, I've been working especially in 12, uh, chapter 12 and 13 this week. And so, I, I mean, while I've been reading this, I've had Smaug in my head certainly the whole time. And uh, um, remember the passage in The Hobbit when Smaug is trying to get Bilbo to tell him that it's, he's trying to get Bilbo to tell Smaug Bilbo's real name. And Bilbo is wise enough to know that you can't just you you don't want to reveal your real name to a dragon, um, and but of course you don't want to just uh, flatly refuse to tell him either, and that's why he gives the long riddling list um, of identifiers instead of giving him a real name. Turin, unlike Bilbo, just blurts it out. Hey, I'm Turin, son of Hurin, and um, I think that that's uh, I. I, I'm not sure that that's not significant. Um, against Gwyndor's statement, um, you know, the doom is not in your is is in you, not in your name. I would actually put a quote from Tom Bombadil uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring when uh, when Frodo asks him, "Who are you, Master?" and Tom Bombadil says, uh, "You know, don't you know my name yet?" Tell me, who are you, alone yourself and nameless? He says, that's the only answer. Who are you, alone yourself and nameless? Um, so uh, names names are important. But uh, anyway, um, I, I don't want to, I don't, I'd perhaps perilous to bring up Tom Bombadil at pretty much any time. Um, but uh, I, I see, I, I don't want to get too distracted on that. But, but the point is, I actually think that there is good reason to think that the name is really significant, and there are a couple moments when, you know, and thus was Turin, son of Hurin, revealed. Um, the name is important. Even recall uh, Neonor's reaction, excuse me, which when she is still Niniel, um, when Brandir tells her, you know, she's going to marry Turin, and, and she, you know, she loves Turin, and she's going to marry Turin, and Brandir says, you know, I think you should know he's Turin, son of Hurin, and a shadow falls upon her at hearing his name, but she still, I mean, she still, she still goes through with it, but, um, anyway, I think that, um, there are definitely moments when we can see that there does seem to be significance in the revelation of the, of the real name, but... Anyway, so I just I I, th- I think we can see both things at play now. Matt, let's come back to you here. Okay, um, little indulgence here. I I did a little analysis this week of uh, going beyond the names of words that are used to describe uh, Turin throughout the chapter. Good. And uh, I came up, I came up with three groups of uh, of words. Uh, they're both adjectives and nouns. And the first group I would call positive words used to describe him. And uh, that is a list of ten words, fair, strong, tall, young, prowess, skill, mighty, fame, neutral, or ambiguous words. And there are four of those, uh-huh. unmoving, unweeping, dark-haired, and pale-skinned. Now, when we get to the last, they total 33. <laughs> and uh, to be fair, some of these were given to him by Glaurun. But then again, a lot of the things that Glauron said are true. Right. So, um, and those words are unkempt, hard, stubborn, rage, fear, terrible, crazed, grim, cursed, wrathful, doom, proud, stern, terrible, vain, outlaw, slayer, usurper, captain foolhardy, deserter, hunted, bitter, wild, wary, Fay, stabber, treacherous, faithless, weary, 
sick, unquiet spirit, wrathful, and say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's And one of the patterns that you can see working there is that I think... The, the... Sorry, Matt, go ahead. I'm... No, I'm sorry. I was just saying, just going through the list of those words, those were in order the way they appear in the chapter, mm-hmm. and... That kind of tells the story, just those lists of words. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. You can, you can, you can walk. You can definitely walk through. I was, I was thinking my way through the plot as you were reading them, um, and of course, as you pointed out, you can also, you know, hear the chunks of them that come through in Glaurung's voice, which is, which is, which is really interesting. I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that you can notice is that the ways in which some of those the ones that you put in the class of negative words are at least related to the ones which are um, positive words or which are potentially positive. Um, And this is, that's one of the stories, uh, that's one of the centerpieces of Turin's own personal story that he, um, even thinking back, uh, Dave, to your comment, one of the reasons that he can't hide, he's too awesome. He cannot blend in. He will never blend in everywhere he goes. He just is like too inescapably superior to everybody else. Um, he just, everything, everywhere he goes, he becomes the leader. Everything he does, he's completely, he's a complete standout. He's taller than everybody else. He's more beautiful than everybody else. I and mean, we're told he is, he is the hottest male human in all of, of, of history. Um, he's just, he absolutely cannot blend in. Um, and, but yet, sort of the tragedy comes in when some of those, uh, you know, when you combine some of those things which are positive or potentially positive, positive with the things like hard and stubborn. Um, uh, yeah, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's uh, one more point that I wanted to bring up. And, and so far throughout all these sessions, I avoided, I have avoided the dreaded sports analogy, <laughs> but I'm going to bring that in here now. Okay. He, he almost reminds me of, well, he almost reminds me of like a really great athlete who's a total pain in the rear, mm-hmm. but they keep getting chances over and over again because they're so talented. You know, someone like Terrell Owens. Yeah, I was or, just thinking of uh, that. Roger yeah. Clemens. Yeah. Brett Favre. Somebody like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, he certainly is somebody who, and it's not even like he's given another chance, because it's not like, you know, for instance, when he comes into Brethel, it's not like they're like, well, this guy's bad news, we know this is bad news, you know, and like having this guy on our team is guaranteed to scuttle us, but, you know, it might work out. Um, it's just, it, it happens, it just naturally happens. Um, he can't, it's like he can't, um, it's like he can't help himself and nobody else can help themselves either. Um, that, you know, when he is around, people just defer to him. Um, you know, one question that I was asking in our class notes, which I think is an interesting thing, he, when he is called um, a usurper by Glaurung, you know, that's kind of true, but not exactly. When you look at Kelagorm and Kurofin, we've seen Nargothron usurped. I mean, we know what that looks like. Um Kelgorm and Kurufin, Kurufin did that, but we saw them plotting to do it, right? We saw them making speeches which were designed to undermine the authority of the king of Nargothron, Finrod in that case. Um, 
separating Finrod from the rest of the people so that they could create a leadership void which they could move in on um, and kind of shove Oradreth to the side, which doesn't seem all that hard to do. And then... Um, and then you know, and then they could they could take over, and that's and that's what they did. And, you know, and there's that there's that wonderful moment in the story of Baron and Luthien when when uh, Kurafin and Keligorm look at each other and smile, right? As they as like you know things are going according to plan. Turin doesn't do anything like that. I mean, he just through his own natural leadership gifts end up like ends up being taken more seriously, and 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 his words having more and more weight until in the end. Uh, he is clearly the actual lord, uh, the 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 in practice lord of Nargothrond, um, and Oradreth is just like following him around, even when he's saying, "Hey, let's ignore the messengers of Olmo." Um, so, and you know, when he is in Brethel, it's like even he is attempting, he's actively trying to hide. He's actually trying to keep a low profile, but just can't help it. He tries to give up war, and he can't completely give up war um so yeah I, I think it's it's uh it's it's really fascinating to see um the way in which that uh, the way in which his leadership kind of comes out and how these sort of catastrophic um with the catastrophic results especially in Nargothrond, of course of his assumption of leadership um, but the way that it just sort of it just sort of happens he never has done any of that with anything like malicious intent now one thing i wanted to uh i wanted to say on still on the names front um I've been saying that I think it's 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 interesting to make that distinction that Matt introduced between the names that he gives himself and the names that he's given um and I want to come to the names to the names that he's given at first. He's given two names, both of them in Nargothrond, um, which he does not take to himself, but they are given to him by the people of of Nargothrond, and they are and we're given we're told about them both in the same paragraph. Adonathel, that is Elfman, in reference to how gorgeous he is and we're told that he looks like he could be a noldor he's just as tall as they are he's got the black hair that all the noldor have um except for this the children of finarfin um and you know we're told about this because the vanyar tend to be blonde and finarfin married uh, a woman of the vanyar so finarfin's kids finrod and uh, um and galadriel that's why galadriel's blonde um but anyway, the rest of the Noldor all have all have black hair. Um, so anyway, so we're told that you know he could look like a you know he looks so much like one of the Noldor that he's called Elfman, um, and of course also they give him the name of they start calling him the Mormigil, which means the Black Sword. Um, now, what do you make of Mormigil in comparison to uh, in comparison to the others to to the other names that he gives to himself at other times. How is this name different? Um, I mean, do you see anything? Do you see anything interesting there from him calling himself like Nathan the Wronged or Gorthal the Great Helm or Agarwine, son of Umarth? Um, what's interesting about Mormigil? Any thoughts there? No takers on this one. I mean, I certainly, uh, you know, the. First thought that I have about this is that you know notice that first of all this is an external description. Um, that is, it's not about himself. The the others the the ones that he gives himself tend to be more 
about himself, that is to describe his perception of himself. He perceives that he has been wronged, so he names himself Nathan the Wronged. He perceives that he is bloodstained, and so he names himself Bloodstained. Um, here, um, I mean, it's not as simple as like, we perceive that he has a black sword, and so we shall call him Black Sword. Um, but they choose the sword by which to identify him, because of course we know that... Uh, Anglachel, the uh, the 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 black sword that he's using, um, before he renames it Gurthang, um, the sword itself is different, is unusual, is important. Um, you know, we're told that this is a strong sword, and it's that black metal, which is very unusual. So it's distinctive, but it's obviously this is more than that. That the sword becomes the sort of representative of his authority and of his 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 prowess. That is of his of his fighting ability. Um, you know he is in the eyes of the of the the the, the people of Narcothrond identified with his his power the, these admirable things about him the you know the upside um to him and but i think of course it's also it's very interesting you see the connection of course between the mormigil and agarwine um because of course it was with the black sword that he became bloodstained um and killed beleg so in some ways you could say that those two things are just opposite sides of the same coin um bloodstained and the you know the 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 the, the broken and um and and grief-filled, self-loathing figure of Agarwine, son of Umarth, that we saw breaking down by the shores of Ivrin. And, on the other hand, the great, noble, powerful uh, figure of the Mormigil, whom all orcs fear and run from, just at the rumor of his approach. Um, and that, that those are two sides of the same thing. And again, this is what we see so often with Turin. Um, the good stuff and the bad stuff being two sides of the same thing and two different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, now, thinking of his other name, Adonavel, it's so rare. I mean, he's never called, we never see anybody calling him that um, in this narrative. And it's just sort of mentioned and then kind of dropped like, oh, and FYI, he was really hot, which we're told halfway through the story. But... Um, but I also think that it's an important moment because we're introduced to that idea of him being the elf man at the same time to transition to an idea um, that uh, that I, of course, wanted to make sure to hit on the relationship or the almost relationship between him and Finduelas. Because, of course, the status of him as elf man, as somebody who seems, at least in the eyes of other people, to um, to bridge the gap between elves and men should already make us think of Baron and Luthien, even if we didn't have this human man, elf woman, potential Baron and Luthien-esque relationship um, going on there, which of course, if we had forgotten about, we have Gwyndor to remind us uh, of it as he explicitly alludes to it in connection with, with, uh, with Turin and Finduilas. Laura, go ahead. I just thought it was interesting how um, Bar or Turin, I'm sorry, the way he's described, it's almost like the description of Luthien in a way. Um, he's, you know, the most beautiful of mortal men, and even his coloring is mm -hmm. the same as Luthien's, with the dark hair, the, the pale face, and the gray eyes. You know, and it's almost like, you know, it, it's it's almost heartbreaking to sort of set up that that comparison between the two, you know, be, because the outcomes are just so different between uh, Baron and Luthien and and uh, Turn and Finduila. Yeah, so it, it, it makes it it makes it more bitter, I think. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's a really, um, that's a really neat observation because, of course, that's true. I mean, obviously, it's uh, um, it's tempting first to think about obviously the parallels between him and Baron, as that's of course the one that's explicitly our attention is explicitly drawn to by Gwyndor. But you're absolutely right, um, the the black hair and that we don't we don't we're not told it, you know no big deal is made of Finduilas's hair it's Turin's hair that is made a big deal of um and even you know to sort of take that one step further Laura you think about the connection with shadow recall that we you know we, we, when we were looking at Luthien and the and the descriptions of Luthien and the way that Tolkien emphasizes you know shadow and evening and twilight in association with her and um and you know we were talking a little bit at the time when we were doing our Baron and Luthien classes about um how you know, in in Luthien, we get like the darkness purified, or sort of this glimpse of the darkness when it was, when it was still beautiful, and when it was, and, and when it was without fear. You know, a shadow which is a good thing, and which is a beautiful thing, and not an evil thing. Um, and here, you know, the shadow, um, when shadow falls upon <laughs> Turin, it's not a good thing, ever a good thing. Um, you know that it's just pure tragedy there um so i think that that's um that's i think uh, 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 as you say it does really emphasize turin's the tragedy of turin's fate to think about it in conjunction with baron because of course that's the other thing you know we hear about turin's doom um and him trying to escape his doom well you know the other person whom we heard about doom a lot is baron both baron and luthien um his doom baron's doom drove him on that's how he got through the girdle of melian in the first place because the doom that was upon him was too strong and melian couldn't um couldn't hold him out couldn't stand against it um so similarly Turin's doom is too strong, but when we talk about Turin's doom, it seems always a bad thing, and when we talk about Baron's doom, it's not a bad thing. Not that it's a great, cheerful, and awesome thing at all times. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a terrible, it's a terrifying doom that Baron has, but but it doesn't end out the same way. Um, so I, that's certainly another strong connection between Turin and both Baron and Luthien is is this the predominance and the force of their doom, which, which pursues them. Um, but, you know, again, I think of the passage, you know, thinking about Turin trying to hide the way that we, uh, have been discussing him doing when we look at Baron and Luthien, I, you know, I'm recalling the passage where they keep coming out of hiding, um, or, you know, when they're fighting, Hey, you stay in hiding. No, no, I don't want to stay in hiding. I'm going to come with you. Um, Baron chooses to face his fate and go, um, of his own will to Angband and confront his fate, whereas Turin is always running from Angband and from the fate. Um, th- now, again, I, th- th- but that seems a little unfair. It's not like Turin's fate, you know, or what he really should have done was just gone to try to, you know, raid Angband by himself. Uh, th- I mean, there's We have no reason to think that that would be a good idea. His fate is not the same as Baron's fate. Um, but... Uh, um, but again, we we certainly see them moving in the opposite direction, um, and Baron and Luthien discussing together. Are you going to embrace your fate? Because I am embracing your fate with you. Whereas Turin never embraces his fate, which leads us to his last and most significant name, Master of Doom, um, Turambar. Now, 
remember it's easy to it's easy to forget especially since the title that this chapter is given in the Silmarillion is of Turin Turambar and so it's easy to kind of think of Turambar as you know like a surname or something as like his last name um but of course it's not that at all when he is living among the woodmen he is just called Turambar that's his that's his whole name um so when the names are combined at the very end of the story um Turin Turambar, as they are, they're combined on his tombstone. Um, and, but that's not just like a statement of his full name. That is a statement, basically a combination that his, his birth name, Turin, the name which links him to his father, Hurin, and therefore to his house and to the, the royal line of the men of Dorloman, um, that is retained for him and put on his tombstone. But the other name that's retained, it's not Nathan, it's not Gorthal, it's not Agarwine, uh, it's not the Mormigil, it's Turambar. His last name, that is his final name that he gives himself, and uh, and the one which is sort of most ironic and most important, because of course it means Master of Doom. Um, and of naturally, it ends up being a very, very painful name. This is in some ways the uh, um, the most, the cockiest name that he gives to himself. But of course, it turns out to be um, horribly untrue that he has mastered fate. He thinks he's won and escaped it, and he hasn't. Um, but Brandon, if you're available to talk, I would like you to say aloud what you were just pointing out uh, in in uh, in our chat window here because that's exactly what I was thinking. Sure, yeah, I was just going to point out that uh, Mel, and before, when, uh, in the previous chapter, Melkor says to Huron that he is the master of the fates of Arda. Yeah. Only he is. So almost like Melkor has the same sort of pride that um, Turin shows, right? Yeah, exactly. There's this, there's this terrible irony. The final name that he gives himself when he thinks he has beaten Morgoth is the name that Morgoth has given to himself as well. Uh, master of the fates of Arda. Um, that you, you could... That you could translate that to Rambar, Master of Doom. Doom and fate um, are words which Tolkien at times uses almost interchangeably. Um, the word doom also has other meanings. It also means, and that's the thing, the word doom, and I said this before, I think I must have said this um, in my Tolkien class at the college, but um, the word doom is a really fascinating word in Tolkien's vocabulary, and he makes very interesting use of it because it has a double meaning which makes this one word kind of represent the entire heart of the debate that is so easy to have about Turin Turambar. Is is the horrible stuff that happens to him as a result of his free choices, or is this a result of fate, that is, a result of the will of Melkor or something else external acting upon him? And Doom means both of those things. It means fate, capital F. It also means judgment, uh, decision, Uh my favorite sentence to quote to illustrate this is the sentence from the from the Council of Elrond when Elrond says that is the do-, you know when when they're trying to you know he's talking about figuring out what to do with the ring and he says that is the doom that we must deem uh, you know using the noun and verb forms of it in the same sentence um, that is the doom that we must deem um, that's the decision that we must make not you know that is the fate that we must confront or whatever um, so. So in that one word, doom, we can see both of these things happening. And so, so when Melkor calls himself the master of the fates of Arda, he's calling himself Turambar too. And now this leads us, of course, to um, that 
that leads this leads us of course to two different things right on the one hand the similarity in their two names is sort of a horrible joke at Turin's expense um you think you're escaping Morgoth but actually you're playing right into his hands and your own pride um and sort of smug self-confidence is going to lead to a horrible end as of course it as of course it does um but at the same time, the joke is on Morgoth too, um, because it we should be remembering that just as we see at the end of his story, Turin kind of posturing um, in this ultimately vain way in saying, "I am the master of doom," um, we saw Morgoth posturing in exactly that way, and with even sharper irony. He is not master of the doom of Arda. He is a prisoner. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's the, the connection between those two is really, really rich. And it's one thing. So here you go, Laura. Here's a hopeful thing, right? It's, it, it's one way that we can have hope about the end, uh, that we can derive hope from the end of the story of Turin Turambar is what we see at the end of Turin Turambar is not simply unilaterally Morgoth winning. I mean, we're even kind of prepared for something like that when the at the beginning of the story we're told that this story will unfold for us most evil deeds of Morgoth Bauglir. But it's not just so this is Morgoth having his way and doing horrible, horrible, horrible things to people um, you know, that they can't help and just having his way and being victorious. He's not victorious. In the end, his defeat of Turin, um, if we consider it a defeat of Turin, though I think that's debatable, um, th- you know, is 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 just itself a picture not of Morgoth's victory, but of Morgoth's defeat, um, because he he uh, you know sort of stands in as like a little Morgoth, um, and uh, that's that's um, so yeah. I mean, I I think that that's one indirect way um, that we can see sort of hope here. Laura, go ahead. I'm probably cutting way ahead, but, um, you know, Morgoth is defeated, I suppose, in the end, but the victory doesn't seem very, uh, it doesn't seem very uh, happy, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, or triumphant, I guess, is the word I'm trying to speak. Even in, even in Tolkien's language, you know, there's no, there's no rejoicing at, uh, at the end, yeah. Um, and, I mean, I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but you know, everybody dies. So. <laughs> right? Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it's it's not. It, it's funny for you know if that's the point he's trying to get across, he doesn't really bring it out very much. I mean, I guess the only clue is in the um, these uh, burial mounds that um, that that seem to laugh. Yes. But you know, it, it, it's it's pretty uh, it's it, it's pretty circumspect way of of uh, saying that uh, that they beat their doom. Yeah, yeah, and and or even they, I don't think they do beat it. They live out their doom. Their doom catch. You know, the the I love that sentence uh, where it says you know that Turin can hear can hear the footsteps of his doom uh, catching up with him. Um, his doom catches up with him. And he recognizes it, and he has that final terrible moment um, 
that moment, and I, I love the fancy Greek word for this, anagnorisis. It's that moment in the Greek tragedy, like the moment when Oedipus realizes, oh my gosh, I've slept with my mother and killed my father. Um, that moment uh, in Greek tragedy was called anagnorisis. And there is this really powerful, tragic moment of anagnorisis for, for Turin when he meets Mablung. And Mablung confirms for him that, yeah, that really that really was your sister. And... Um, and uh, you just murdered Brandir, uh, you know, unrighteously, and all of these things really are true, and your your doom has definitely come upon you. Um, yeah, you know, I noticed that too. How his doom—it was very descriptive the way he talked about his doom catching up with him and having actual footfalls. Yeah, and things like that. And you know, the other thing that struck me while I was reading it is there's there's sort of a almost pagan sensibility to this story that you don't get in a lot of other other Tolkien you know like you've got this doom that you can't escape from and, and there's no talk of free will or anything like that you know you just have this inexorable doom sort of following you around and and you know you, you sort of see that in a lot of the 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 Greek tragedies and things like that. Yeah. Doom and nothing you can do about it. Yeah, and of course this is all, that's also that's also a northern thing too. We get that same that same sense of fate. Um you know that cannot be avoided. Um and you can see this in Anglo-Saxon stuff, you can see this in Old Norse stuff. Um and uh yeah, I, I think that uh, several things that I, that I want to say in response there. First, um Yes, it's true that we see this this concept of inescapable fate and the foot the footfalls of your fate pursuing you, but it's not like we've totally forgotten about free will. There is free will here, and as we can see, you can go through and see that almost everything that happens to Turin is a result of decisions that he's made. And we are told explicitly, particularly, we have strongly emphasized the fact that if he were to make a different choice at one point he could have averted his fate it was possible if he had saved Finduilas, then it wouldn't have happened the 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 final end wouldn't have happened um we're told that gwindor prophesized that and i mean i don't see a reason to disbelieve him now of course you can still say oh but could that really have happened was that actually an option or was it fated that he wasn't going to take that option and therefore um therefore this is going to be um you know, to make another pagan comparison, you know, perhaps that kind of sounds like uh, like the Iliad. You know, we're told that Achilles has two fates. Um, you know, fr- from the beginning, Achilles' mom, Thetis, is going around and, um, you know, she's really sad because she knows her son is fated to die young. And so poor Achilles, who is awesome and he's very Turin-like in that he is the most gorgeous person. He's the hottest guy in the camp and he's by far just head and shoulders stronger than everybody else. Um so there's the very Turin-like Achilles, who um, is fated to die young, and his mom, the goddess, knows it, and she is complaining about this. What well, complaining? You know, she's sad about this from the beginning. But then he makes this big speech in Book Nine of the Iliad, where he says, "I have two fates." You know, I, and 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 he says that he can choose. He can either stay and stay at Troy and have glory, but die soon, or he could leave and go home. Uh, to his delightfully named island of island of of Phthia, and um, and he would have long life and peace, but no honor and no glory. And uh, this is, of course, in the context in Book Nine when he's saying, "And thank you very much. I'm going to choose to go home. Um, you know, have a good time. Um, you know, have fun storming the castle here at Troy. I'm out of here." So again, in that moment in the Iliad. 
Achilles is talking like he has a choice. Um, and he's going to make the choice to go home, just like Turin um, sort of, well, Turin after the fact, trying to choose to save Fenduelas. But, you know, with Achilles, we know from the beginning his mom knows he's going to die. There's not really a choice. And when it comes to it, of course, surprise, surprise, Achilles ends up making the choice to stay and kill Hector and die. Um, and, you know, so with so again, so it's possible to say that, again, like that kind of a pagan situation, there's this sort of sense of 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 free will, but you sort of question, does Achilles really have that choice? It doesn't look like he really has that choice, that that fate and the gods are not really leaving that choice open to him, um, as we see the gods then sort of mastermind and manipulate the situation to create the situation that ends in Achilles' death. Now, so I, this is, again, by long-winded way of agreeing with you, Laura, that there is this, um, there is a pagan sensibility to, to this, more so than, than in other places. And I think Tolkien really valued that. Um, Tolkien, that is, Tolkien really valued uh, pagan literature and pagan epic and thought that there was, that there, that there was, there was real value in these stories. Um, and, and of course there's no coincidence that this story has a kind of a pagan sensibility because this story is explicitly and directly adapted from a pagan story, from the story of Kulervo, um, in the Finnish epic, the Kalevala. Um, and um, we don't have time to get into the story of Kulervo now. That's a, that is a, that is a, um, that is a discussion for another time, though it is another time that might come sooner than you think. But anyway, we're not going to talk about it tonight. Um, but 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 that is to say, it is you know there's certainly you're certainly right to say, um, Laura, that there is that pagan sense to it. But but although he he's he doesn't you know as Tolkien never just kind of takes pagan stuff and baptizes it. You know, like, hey, let's do let's do a Christian version of of this story. Um, because he values and respects the original pagan stories too much to do that. But but as I say, it's not like free will is just absent from this story. It's there. And I think in the um you know, I, I said way back, way, way back, when we were discussing the Aino Windaway, that I think the Aino Windaway is one of the most sensitive and perceptive fictional depictions of how free will and uh and and fate and predestination go together. Um, you know, how those two things uh can um can exist at the same time, which is an old idea of Christian theology, but um, but which, as I said, I think Tolkien fictionally represents very interestingly. But I would put the story of Turin right under the Aino Windaway um, uh, in my list of, of 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 places where we can see those things working out, because I think that we can see. Um, we can see both of those things. And then going back to the connection between Turin and Morgoth, that is the master of fate or master of doom connection. Um, remember that passage again, way back in the Aino Lindaway, when we were told that, when we're told about the free will of men and how they have this freedom to, 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 to govern their own lives and to determine their own fates. Um, and we're told that, uh, the elves believe that men are often a grief to Manway. Um, and that they're really kind of a lot like Morgoth sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, and lo, it comes to pass. You know, we can see in Turin that that example, a, a clear example of those connections between Turin and b- between Turin and Morgoth, and therefore sort of by extension between between humanity and Morgoth. Um, 
but uh, anyway, so that th- that I think is a really um, so I wouldn't. Although I do agree with you about the very pagan feeling presence of fate in this story, um, he does. Tolkien does, I think, bring in these other ideas in ways which I think are very, um, are very important. Are very, uh, you know, which which it's important for us not, not to overlook. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So now I want to go to, hmm, hmm. We've been kind of. Uh, we departed from the notes that I had prepared for our class today about two minutes into it. Um, tell you what, here's what we should do. Let's go back a little bit. Well, let's go back a lot, actually. Um, we've kind of been talking about some big picture stuff, um, which has been really good, and I'm really glad we started with these things. Um, let's, uh, let's get Dave. No, we're going to finish this week. Dave, uh, Dave is, uh, is here texting one more week, one more week. He always starts this chant. Um, I, I, it's pretty clear that Dave doesn't want the Silmarillion seminar ever to end. And while I sympathize with that view, uh, I do in fact want to keep moving, but, um, Let's go back to the beginning of our um, of our reading for this week, for the beginning of our stuff, and kind of now go back through some of the other more specific questions and thoughts that you guys had, and just kind of fill in some of the details, because of course there are many things that we skipped over and haven't really talked about much yet, like, oh, for instance, the dragon, whom we've said almost nothing about, um, other than my vague hobbit connections that I that I was making. Um... But um, let's uh, let's talk about Turin's grief by uh, by the Lake of Ivrin and his meeting with Gwyndor. Anything that you guys want to add um, uh, on on that? Okay, okay, guys, calm down. If we don't get through it, we'll do another week. It's fine. But we've got another hour. Let's keep going. Let's 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 kind of keep it together here. My but my text chat is going crazy here with protestations. Um, <laughs> and now Dave is passing it along from people in the chat room. I understand. I understand. Laura, go ahead. Did you have a thought on that, Laura? Oh, wait, I've lost Laura. Okay. Um, uh, Joe, uh, why don't you go ahead and start? Alrighty. <clears throat> well, um, one thing I kind of noticed, it's kind of a long shot, and it may not really connect, but uh, when he's by the river, and uh, Gwyndor describes it as, you know, uh, the endless laughter that is mentioned. It reminds me of his first sister, almost. You know, uh, she kind of escaped from the world and is endlessly laughing as much as she wants now, because she's, we know not where. But uh, that's just a vague connection I made. I don't think it really means anything, but it just reminded me of it. And um, it also seems like Turin drinking signifies him letting Alma work in him and heal him. Like, uh, like he has a moment of clarity, and he kind of truly sees things working, and, uh, I think Turin realized, like he kind of came to this realization earlier, it was his fault, and it wasn't his fault what happened. Um, he may be a small piece in a bigger picture. It didn't last very long, but he kind of got the bigger picture. Um, and uh, also, like the singing. I mean, uh, Turin himself is a very powerful character. I mean, he's called the Elf Man. And whenever elves sing, I mean, that means something, especially since we made, like, the Luthien connection. I mean, uh, right. singing is a very powerful thing, so him doing that could help the healing more so than just grieving 
Those are really great points. Uh, I mean, Joe, you're really on a roll there. Two, the, two of those things that I would really emphasize, because I think they're so important, um, that they're worth saying again. You're, that connection with the laughter and his sister is completely brilliant. I love that. Um, especially since by this time in the story, you know, his sister didn't live all that long, and she only was in like two or three sentences of this story. So um, it's easy to forget about her by now. We've had so much... Um, so much of Neonor, so much of weeping, that um, that it might be uh, easy to have already forgotten La Life. And when we're told that there is endless laughter here, um, and that it's you know by the shores of the Lake of Endless Laughter that his tears are unloosed and he is able to weep and to grieve, of course, you know, should remind us of his earlier grief for his sister and that idea of endless laughter. Um, you know laughter which cannot be killed by a pestilence out of the north um you know in the unpolluted uh waters of 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 this lake um is clearly a very powerful image uh in you know for turin and in turin's life i think that's a that's a wonderful connection so a lot more we could do with that uh, i i think and then also i would say um uh, your connection to 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 Olmo, I, I I agree, is important, especially since uh, this lake is so important in relation to the River Sirion, which um, which we know to be very important for uh, uh, for Olmo. Uh, yeah, Laura, you want to have another shot here? Yeah, I, I hit the wrong button, so <laughs> sorry about that. Um, yeah, and and Joe brought it up about. Um, <clears throat> Olmo perhaps working on uh, Turin a little bit, and I thought maybe this was, you know, the the other Valar, um, or Olmo anyway, uh, working a little bit uh, on Turin, uh, whereas all the other Valar seem to be just letting letting uh, Morgoth do whatever he wants with these poor people. But at least Olmo has a little bit of sympathy for him and uh, gives him. A, a little bit of uh, a little bit of peace, you know. But it does make me wonder why, um, you know, why why they didn't do more, or why, or why Olmo didn't try to do a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, and that well, though you know, as we'll get to in just a couple minutes, um, Turin doesn't uh, doesn't return the favor very nicely. Um, that is, he doesn't end up showing much respect for Olmo um, when it comes to it. Uh, so perhaps that serves uh, as a, at least a partial answer to the question, um, why doesn't Olmo do more? Um, Hiroki tries. Um, go ahead. Yes, true. A- another reason to be annoyed at uh, Turin. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back to being resentful. <laughs> to, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I see. Um yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So no, I think that that's uh, in those two things. That is in um, in Turin's healing by the shores of the lake, and in the messengers that Olmo sends um, very directly. You know, we get two interventions into Turin's career here, and neither one of them exactly seem to be taken up. You know, it's possible even to see um, his naming of himself Agarwine after he leaves the lake, after he gets to Nargothrond. You know, it's even possible to see that in a sense as 
obviously it's not as explicit a rejection of Olmo and Olmo's assistance as when he as when as uh as as Dusty is you know says he you know disses Olmo's messengers but but you know it's hard for me to think that Turin hasn't kind of missed the point a little bit um I mean, it's the lake of endless laughter he's been cleansed or he could cleansing is available perhaps but instead of coming away cleansed he comes away um you know, still calling still identifying himself as the bloodstained um so i think um i think that that's i i get him sort of resisting to some extent um he won't be cleansed he won't um he doesn't at endless laughter he's not he's not there um um he won't he doesn't go there um i don't know uh yeah brandon go ahead all right i'm gonna try i'm not gonna defend turin here but i'm gonna try to point out that um at least he and i think laurong kind of plays on this um he does have pity mm-hmm. he does have that one kind of um virtue about him i think in it it kind of and Glarong uses that against him, but he does kind of have the virtue of pity. Um and you can see that evidenced by I think various things, but one of the things is um his lament for Beleg, um and the song for Gwyndor's death even. Um he does have pity. Um so I don't know. Maybe maybe he doesn't maybe he's just a one hundred percent terrible person, but I think uh Tolkien's a little more complicated than that kind of black and white yeah no i agree i mean and certainly think even of 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 meme and his response to meme um he uh he 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 clearly shows pity he's sorry for uh uh you know for meme and the death of his son um even the fact that he is repentant for the murder of brondir at the end i think to a certain extent, shows some pity also, um, you know, that he realizes how horrible that was, you know, at, like his taking on of Brondir in what has to be the most lopsided fight um, that we see. Um, and he knows that that's just, it's just, it's not right on many levels. That's, that that's just not right. Um, no, I think he does have that. He does have that quality. And that is definitely an important thing. Um, Let's see. I'm kind of looking ahead, sort of scanning ahead here to look at sort of other things that we'd wanted to talk about uh, to make sure that we don't just totally leave them behind. Um, well, let's go on to to let's go on to almost warning because we've been talking about that. Um, any other thoughts about the actual th- moving on from from the lake to the messengers? Any other thoughts on the actual rejection um, of the messengers? Of course, we should probably, it would make sense, to actually look at the content of their message. Um, When Omo has sent directions before, you'll remember one of the directions that he sent, one of the dreams that he sent, was to Finrod to build Nargothrond, um, to build this secret fortress. Um, And so, you know, Omo, on the one hand, you could say is just sort of giving an update uh, on that. Um, But... uh, Let's see, where are we here? This is uh, page 212. 
Hear the words of the Lord of Waters, they said to the king. Thus he spoke to Kirdan the shipwright. The evil of the north has defiled the springs of Syrian, and my power withdraws from the fingers of the flowing waters. But a worse thing is yet to come forth. Say therefore to the Lord of Nargothrond, Shut the doors of the fortress, and go not abroad. Cast the stones of your pride into the loud river, that the creeping evil may not find the gate. Now, thoughts? Anything... Anything about this message jump out at you? This is a this is a a close reading quiz here. Say therefore to the Lord of Nargothrond, shut the doors of the fortress and go not abroad. Cast the stones of your pride into the loud river, that the creeping evil may not find the gate. Mike, what jumps out at me is that in the middle of these explicit instructions about what to do and why there's sort of this metaphorical instruction buried in the middle which is not do something explicitly but cast down the stones of your pride which is more cryptic yeah yeah i mean it clearly is you know alluding to the to the bridge very clearly but yes i agree the the fact that um we have this sort of commentary on it um uh this metaphorical commentary on it as you say um uh, is is clearly significant. Dave, what are your thoughts? Mike stole mine. I was going to say the same thing. Uh, I was going to point out the thing about the pride. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that, uh, that, that yeah, uh, not just amidst specific instructions, he gave a sort of a metaphorical instruction that refers to, you know, um, uh, Torin's character, but but also that amid giving him a message about Nardothrond, he's giving Torin a, a sort of more general warning about himself and about his and about his character, and and that he connects it specifically to Nardothrond, and he and he's pointing out sort of Torin's downfall, like you know your 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 behavior is prideful. It's one of those. Um, uh, Love not the work too much the work of your own hand situations. The, we're not talking about a specific piece of craft work like a material thing, but Torin, Torin, you know, really thinks that he's just something special and really knows what he's doing and is just plowing ahead. Yet, like he, you know, he he comes in as a guest to Nardothrond and they have their way of doing things that they've been doing for a while. And he's like, no, 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 come on, guys, that's all wrong. You should be doing it this way. And Ormal sort of tries to point out, like you're you're letting your pride carry you away. You're you're trusting too much in yourself and in your goals and your objectives and your sort of plans and the way that you think things should be done. Uh, and you know you're going to sink the ship that you're on. Um, uh, and um, you know you should stop. You need to change your way. And and then of course he ignores that, and that's exactly what happens. And indeed. That's what happens time and again. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, later on, he's sort of, when he's thinking about whether to go back and see his family in Doriath, he, he has this moment where he's thinking about, like, well, should I really go back there? Or should I maybe leave well enough alone, assuming they're safe there? Um, and, you know, everywhere I go, I take a shadow with me. The shadow of the curse falls upon those and there. And he never never stops to contemplate that, that indeed some part of that is the bad, everywhere he goes he makes really stupid you know bad decisions and that that is what brings bad consequences on the people around him yeah 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 no i agree um and the, and the, by the way that last passage is one that i would put um into the list of places where even though he's 
like currently in the middle of making a bad decision, even though it is the articulation of a bad decision that is not to go back to Doriath and to say, I'm going to leave my family there. Um, yet you can, his motivations behind it are, 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 are I, I would put that in the list of uh, positive things about him. You know, that he, when he genuinely does believe I am a curse to everybody around me, um, his desire just to be wild man of the woods um, after that, I think is, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of laudable. Um, it's, it's, it's good and it's laudable, but it's wrong too. Right. You know, right. I mean, it, yes. it's, it's, it's inaccurate or incomplete in the sense that it's, it's still in a way it's sort of self pitying and, and short sighted, you know, like, it's wonderful that he recognizes that bad things seem to happen to him wherever he goes and that he cares about his family and he doesn't want to subject them to that. But, the, you know, the really useful recognition would have been, I make bad decisions and that leads to bad consequences. So <laughs> Maybe I'm making know, maybe, one right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe rather than thinking, like, I need to go off and not and take the cloud, the dark cloud above me away, Maybe I should change the way I go about doing things, and you know, then that will help the people around me. What what he doesn't recognize, and maybe maybe this is where he falls short. He sort of thinks that he, for some reason, he seems to think that this curse that he believes is afflicting him, that is no no fault of his own, seems to have like a, a proximity. You know what I mean? That right. like as long as he stays far enough away from his family, they won't be touched. But in making that, you know, as you pointed out, in making that decision. You know, like, he demonstrates that the so-called curse or the bad consequences that follow him everywhere he goes apparently don't respect the geographical bounds that he <laughs> attempts to, to place upon them. Yes. You know, he, he screws people over even when he's nowhere near them. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, Torin, you do not have to get close to me to screw me over. Um, yeah, no, exactly. And, 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 and there I think we can see sort of him looking at the situation far more simplistically um, than 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 it warrants, and again, I sort of re- remember Gwyndor saying the business about you know the 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 doom is not in your name but in you. Um, you know, it's again you're you're oversimplifying it, Torin. You think you can just get around it uh, by some kind of quasi legalistic action. You can't. Um, it doesn't work that way. Um, you need to be thinking in far more. Um, wide-ranging terms than you are. Um, so, yeah, I agree, Dave. We, I think we can definitely see an example of that again. Um, John, you had wanted to talk about um, Turin's pride a little bit more. Um, I wanted to give you a chance there if you, uh, if you, can, uh, if you, if you can activate your mic. <laughs> yeah, John, I'm afraid it is happening again there. I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, Mike is Mike is saying doom. Um, yeah, it sounds like you're like sinking underwater there. I don't know what it is. Um, but just to, to try to pick up on what you were pointing to, um, based on what I have uh, from you uh, from you in text, you were talking about pride being a larger theme in here as there are multiple people who are whose whose pride is a major issue in this story not only Turin um but you are also pointing to Morgoth of course as we've already kind of discussed the connection between Morgoth and Turin um but also Morwen and Neonor um that their pride also plays a really important role I don't know if that's all of what you were going to say but I did uh I did see that in our class notes anyway um so trying to uh 
trying to guess what you were going to try to say from underwater <laughs> there and whatever's happening this evening. Um, and I, I agree. And I think that that is, um, we certainly can. And I would say, especially with Morwen, um, uh, the the decision to leave I talk about boneheaded decisions the decision to leave Doriath was um just bizarre I mean like what's your plan Nor Nargothron has been sacked um you know, like what she she thinks she, her plan is what like a rescue mission she thinks if Turin is there she's gonna go in and storm Nargothron and like what I don't know kill Glaurung single-handedly. I don't know what her plan is. Um, there is de- with definitely pride going on um, uh, with uh, um, with Morrowind. And I think even with, with Neonor and the stubbornness, though, of course, you gotta love the whole, like, oh, the uh, young woman dresses up as a man and stows away among the men of war and they don't realize until they're almost there. Um, uh, motif coming in again. Uh, that was kind of lovely, though, of course, Neonor's story ends up very different from Eowyn's. But, um, but that is, uh, that is, uh, uh, nevertheless, kind of an interesting kind of crossover. Um, a Neonor Eowyn discussion um, would actually be kind of fascinating, though I don't know that we have time to do it in full. But um, uh, but anyway, I do also want to make sure that we get to uh, just back to some sort of final thoughts on on Omo and final thought because there's one other answer to the question that I was asking, um, or I, rather, I want to ask a follow up question about it. So again, this is page 212. When Omo says, Say therefore to the Lord of Nargothron, Shut the doors of the fortress and go not abroad. Cast the stones of your pride into the loud river, that the creeping evil may not find the gate. Um, two things I would... I w- I, well, okay. One thing I'll add, and then the question I'll ask. There's another metaphorical thing um, that... Um, in, not not only the uh, as Mike and Dave were pointing out the stones of your pride um, that is Olmo taking the bridge that Turin has had constructed over the Narog as a metaphor for his own pride but also notice that he's using Glaurung as a metaphor also that the creeping evil may not find the gate yes that also does mean just as the the stones of your pride literally means the bridge um yes the creeping evil literally means Glaurung the dragon who is going to be coming and who is going to find the gate and go across the across the river on the bridge um, it, it, I think we are to understand that Glaurung would have had a very difficult time getting into Nargothrond had there not been a bridge. Um, but that 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 image of the creeping evil means more than just Glaurung as well. That is, um, the the creeping evil, just like the stones of his pride. We're also talking about a characteristic of Turin as well. Um, so I think that that's. Um, that's a that's a big thing. Uh, let's see, Brandon. Did I just uh, steal the thing that you had wanted to say? I see that you've uh, quietly put your hand back down, and that often means I've stolen your thunder. No. Do you have anything you wanted to add? <laughs> no, no. I was you, that was totally brilliant. I think no. I, I was just um, thinking this will bring us back to uh, Turin and his defiance of the Valar. Um, I, I was reading the Children of Huron, mm-hmm. um, which is um, kind of more expanded uh, version of the story, um, and I think it's important to to read that if um, 
if we're going to put this all in context, but I don't know if it was in, I've had them both mixed up the whole week, um, but um, there's, there's one conversation when Gwyndor is talking to Turin, and uh, Turin explicitly defies the Valar, where, so I didn't really see the, the Olmo defiance as, um, you know, f uh, through not listening to the councils of um, the uh, water elves, um, I, didn't, I didn't see that too much of a surprise when, um, when before he and Gwyndor are talking and he says, the Valar, you know, he's, you know, who are the Valar to, you know, challenge me? I forget what he says, right. but uh, Gwyndor, um, you know, remember that part? Yeah. But uh, it's, so it didn't really seem to come as that much a surprise anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree that this, uh, it, it is one of those moments when in the, in the more expanded version, um, certainly does get even more emphasis. Um, okay, one last point on this, and then I will finally let us move on here. Um, and that is, notice whom this is directed to, or rather I could ask this as a question. Whom is Almo's message directed to? Answer, the Lord of Nargothrond. So Oradreth, right? Right? He's, he's, he's sending a message to Oradreth. That's what you'd expect, you know, f from, uh, from, from Olmo through Cirdan the Shipwright up to Oradreth, King of Nargothrond, right? That's where this is going, except, of course, as we've been talking about all along, the actual message, shut the doors, cast the stones of your pride that the creeping evil may not find the gate, um, seems to be very transparently directed to Turin, which makes the phrase, the Lord of Nargothrond, um, in, its, in its way a kind of rebuke, right? That... Uh, um, that he's not the Lord of Nargothrond. Explicitly, this message is directed to Oradreth, and yet everybody knows it's not Oradreth that we're talking to, and uh, Turin seems like to assume that it meant him, but he doesn't care. Um, so anyway, I think that that's, uh, that's uh, a, a, a sort of... This is a, a really carefully crafted... Uh, speech here by by Olmo and his uh, disregarded warning to Turin and shows us a lot I think about Turin um now let's uh hmm Okay, as we get towards 11 o'clock, I'm beginning to become more sympathetic with uh, the requests for one more week. But let's see, I still haven't made up my mind yet. <laughs> Laura, go ahead. Yeah, just another word about Olmo. Um, it, it's kind of in the same vein as, um, you know, when when Melian is is offering her her statements for caution, and she's totally ignored, and Olmo tries to say something, and he's ignored, and yet the elves will listen to this young mortal man. And um, why is that? I mean, it, uh, Turin is speaking to their hearts. You know, he's he's talking about open warfare and being brave and and not hiding in the shadows. Um, and so I guess that's that's what the elves want to hear, you know. And he's also he's also very beautiful, and and they love that too. But it just seems that, um, you know, they they don't want to um, they don't want to listen to something addressed at their heads, you know, mm -hmm. at at their minds, you know. Be be careful, guard what you have, um, you know. In, instead, they really want to believe in this, um, you know, in this bravery that they can do something against Morgoth. So, yeah, and, and you, know, you know, but see, 
Even that's interesting. And they're just tired tired of hiding too. I right, think, right. But see, that's interesting. That's exactly what's interesting about it, though, because these are the people they've been the hidden people for a long time. You know, unlike you know, you've had uh, the, the pairing of Nargothrond and Gondolin from the very beginning. That is from the the day, the one day that Finrod and and Targon were hanging out together, and they both received the same dream. Um, from uh from Omo that they should build a hidden kingdom um and both of them have gone about it in a different way and the difference has always been you know Gondolin completely sealed off from the outside world so that it has absolutely no contact with anybody and then there's Nargothrond which is like hiding in plain sight you know it's not there's there's the barrier of the river but it's not you know this is not a this is not a permanent barrier this is not a it's not like the mountains around Gondolin through which there is only one pass and everything sure it's hard to get in but it's right there um and they interact with the world unlike again unlike the Gondolindrim they do interact with the world around them they send out scouting parties we can recall Baron when he was on his way to Nargothrond he knew the general region that Nargothrond was and um he and he knew that that the people of Nargothrond would be all around him and that's why he was holding up the ring and shouting, "Please don't shoot me! Take me, take me to Finrod." Um, uh, paraphrase there, but uh, anyway. So he, th- th- this is this has always been. So they've always been doing this. This is what they do: is hide. Um, this has been their mo for a really long time. And sure, you know, maybe maybe they're sick of hiding. Maybe they do find Turin's new approach, you know, kind of fun and appealing. Hey, instead of instead of just concealing ourselves, let's go out and uh let's go out and kick Morgoth's butt. I mean that I, I, I can it's not that I can't see how that would be appealing. But honestly that sounds like that's Turin's thinking. That's not the way that the people of Nargothrond are. Remember in their reaction to Kelgorm and Kurufin's speeches, when Finrod, you know, makes his appeal and Kelgorm and Kurufin make their big, um, you know, step one in our three-step process towards usurpation um, speeches, uh, the, they create they create this fear in the hearts of, uh, of the people of Nargothrond, such that from then on, you know, they are even more secret and they never go out openly at all. Um, and Turin reverses that. Um, but so I guess the two ways that you could the two ways that you could see that is on the one hand, what Turin is having them do goes against every tradition and what seems to be every in- impulse and instinct of the people of Nargothrond. Um, and so it's kind of the more extraordinary that he convinces them, them of all people, to become this... Uh, this externally focused, openly militaristic society. But at the same time, you know, you can also sort of see that what he's doing is kind of the opposite of Kelgorm and Kurufin. Instead of inspiring them with fear so that they clam themselves up and don't go out at all, he's inspiring them with courage so that they have the boldness to go forth. Um, And, you know... From one direct, as with so many things of Turin, from one direction, that sounds like it might be a good thing. Um, uh, Elizabeth, you, you wanted to respond there? Yeah, I just wanted to point out what I think is one of the great ironies of the fall of uh, Nargothrin in the uh, in the way that Turin um, interacts here, that he kind of is so wrathful with Gwyndor when he reveals his name and he says, you know, you've done ill by me and you've brought up my right name and brought my doom upon me. Uh, because he wants to keep his name secret, and he's all about the, you know, running from his own doom and from his own identity, and yet he's so aggressive about having um, 
Nargothrin uh, be out in the open and have open warfare and, you know, not be stealthy and secret. And by doing that, he kind of brings the doom upon them. And it, just the irony of that is really, um, you know, just really striking to me. No, that's a great point, Elizabeth. You're absolutely right. Um there is there is a really pointed irony to that. Though again, here gosh, all of a sudden I, I sound like I'm, you know, trying to be a tour and apologist at every turn, but again you can see that as at least potentially a positive thing. That although he is trying he's trying to do both, right? On the one hand he wants to hide from his fate, but on the other hand, he's not content just to uh just to do you know, uh, uh um Laura, like you were saying earlier, you know, just just, you know, find yourself a little hovel and call yourself, you know, Sam the son of John or John the son of Doe and uh and and stay at home, you know, mind your own business, take up carpentry and and, and keep your head down. Um he won't do that because he wants to oppose Morgoth. He refuses <clears throat> just to take a back seat. He refuses to, to not do nothing. Wait, he refuses to do nothing. Sorry, got my double negatives mixed up. So he won't do nothing. Um, so he's trying to have it both ways. He's trying to be hidden and out in the open. Um, and that latter part is, in its way, a laudable thing. But I certainly agree with you. Elizabeth about the the really remarkable irony there and I think that that irony is is a pretty clear signal to us that that this is sort of messed up and obviously the the clear pride with the whole bridge thing and the rejection of almost messengers makes it quite explicitly clear by that point that this is that this has gone wrong but even before we get to that point I think that that irony points us in the direction of seeing how how uh, there's something really not right here. Joe, go ahead. All right, this is kind of moving forward a little bit, but uh, this is talking about how when Turin eventually goes and does his own thing later. Um, it says, At last, worn by haste in the long road for 40 leagues and more, he had journeyed without rest. He came with the first ice of winter to the pools of Ivern, or before he had been healed. But they were now but a frozen mire, and he could drink there no more. And, I mean, that was a place where he had his healing. He had the endless laughter. And now, it seems like after this major event where he chose the wrong path, where he should have uh, gone after Fendulas, um, it seems like there's something is now inevitable, which was kind of pointed out with, I don't know if we talked about what Gwyndor said or not, really. But yeah. um, since he didn't do that, I mean, it's now, I mean, it's kind of like, you, know, there's, you you can't really go back from this now. I mean, the endless laughter is not really an option anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's... it's, it's you can really see the change of pace from what it could have been. Yeah, no, I that's a that's a great you're on fire tonight, Joe. That's a that is a really great point. And I think you're right, the the freezing over of the Lake of Ivrin there, um, it does happen very uncoincidentally, it seems, right after his fate has become fixed. As Gwyndor says, if you don't save Finduelas, it's over. You are you are definitely locked in. Um, and he is definitely locked in, and he he does he finds uh, he does find the lake of endless laughter locked against him. Um, but of course, the other thing that I think that that should inspire us to do is to go back and look at the first time, and again, see how he responds that first time. Because the implication, if we're going to say that that's the moment, um, you know, the Fenduilas moment, that that's the moment when his fate is definitely sealed, then we are also in here, you know, Laura, I'm thinking back to our previous discussion about pagan fate. We then, then basically we are conceding that it wasn't fixed before. 
Um, and I think that the, you know, his two experience, just as Joe is pointing out here, his two experiences, um, by, by Ivrin seem to point to that too. If the frozen lake suggests his now inescapable fate that he now no longer, you know, like Achilles after the death of Hector, he no longer has that other fate, uh, open as an option, you know, he's made his decision and he's now locked in. He wasn't before and he could have responded differently. And maybe, maybe laughter, um, was still an option previously. And I think that we kind of have to concede that, that at least the way that that's set up does suggest that that certainly was an option before. Um, more about Finduilas, more, more sort of at, Compare and contrast. We, we haven't talked about her herself much. We've sort of talked about the role that she has and the the significance of sort of their connection in the story and her um, her being the the sort of turning point of his fate. But we haven't talked about her and her own decisions. Um, what do you what do you make of her? Here we have our uh, um, though again remembering the 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 arguments made earlier by Laura I think it was you um the parallels between Turin and Luthien still Finduilas is clearly a Luthien parallel um what do you make about her and Luthien Luthien what's the difference between her and Luthien I mean is it just the difference is the only difference between uh Finduilas and Luthien that uh you know one happened to fall in love with a really good guy and the other fell in love with Turin or what any thoughts on Finduilis's side of this? Yeah, Laura, go ahead. Well, I'll take a stab at it. But, um, you know, for one thing, uh, Finduilis is turning away from the man she was betrothed to. So she's, um, you know, she's betraying somebody by by uh, having these feelings for Turin. And, um, you know, who knows if, you know, if, if she really... Uh, I mean, she just doesn't seem as faithful as Luthien does. You know, Luthien falls for Baron. She's never really fallen for anybody before. And, you know, she is with him no matter what. And she doesn't, you know, Fenduila sort of mopes around and, um, I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but, but she is silent and wan and everything. And Luthien doesn't do that at all. Luthien is, um, you know, she, she takes her fate in, in her own hands. She just doesn't wait for things to happen to her like Finduilis does. Yeah, so yeah. That's what comes to my mind. Yeah, you're right. Luthien's response to a situation is not to become wan and sad, but rather to, uh, you know, make a cloak of her hair and go out and take charge of things. So, you know, you're certainly right about that. Um, but I agree that previous relationship with Gwyndor does really change things. Now, of course, Luthien had, to some extent, a previous relationship with Dairon, the minstrel. Um, but that seemed to be... What is emphasized in the Baron and Luthien story is his perspective on that. That is, we know that he loved her. Um, and this is what leads him to, to you know, turn Baron in several times um, and essentially betray them in their secrets and then ultimately leave um, searching for her. And so Dairon's story has a tragic end. Um, but but you're absolutely right. I think you're definitely right that there is nothing like the same kind of... With Finduilas, it's not that Finduilas is a, you know, is, is a negative character that I think we're supposed to think ill of her because um, we're told that she's kind of drawn against her will. And the conversation that she has with Gwyndor um, is made, I, I, it's kind of a tragic conversation as basically he, Gwyndor, is recognizing, you know, I can't, 
um, I see what's going on. I don't blame you, but you know, I, this is not going to end well. Um, whereas, again, people tell Luthien similar thing. I mean, Thingold doesn't think that this whole partnership with the man thing is going to end well um, for her either. Um, but yeah, I think it does make a big difference that what the desire for Turin is leading her to, it leads Luthien to leave Doriath and to 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 you know to write her own story and to 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 fulfill her fate which extended beyond Doriath here Finduilas leaves her previous relationship and her previous life and she becomes I don't want to make it too simplistic but she becomes almost like a uh, a metaphor for or a, or a, a, a sort of a figurative expression of the people of Nargathron themselves, um, leaving their previous way of life and their previous loyalties, even their loyalty to Oradreth, uh, you know, who becomes this almost completely inconsequential character by the end, such that when, you know, Olmo sends a message to the Lord of Nargathron, it's not clear to anybody who he's talking to. Um, Brandon? Yeah, I just wanted to point out that I found it um, very interesting that... Um the story of Beren and Luthien is not just on, you know, like the readers' minds, but also seems to be on the minds of the elves themselves. You know, like Findulas is told by Gwyndor, um, you know, he is no Beren. Yeah. You know, uh, talking about Turin, and uh, so it just seems like um, that the story of Beren and Luthien is known to Findulas. She yeah. knows this, so she's kind of maybe seeing herself as a type of Luthien, and that this magical marriage between um, men and elves that maybe she feels that sort of thing. Maybe Bellix felt that sort of way. Um, you know? Yeah, and I mean and that's the thing is that it's important to remember exactly that, that there's there is potential here, there's possibility here. I mean remember what the what the you know, Gwyndor says, like, hey, remember, you know, bonds between men and elves only happen on really special occasions and there's this sense in which you know, Finduela seems to be saying, well, yeah, and, like, this is a special occasion. Um, you know, this this could be one of those. And, you know, it could be. It's possible. It's conceivable that it could be. And you think of what Baron and Luthien did, and they go and they confront the darkness, and they they overcome the darkness, and they bring light and hope in the darkness. And it's not hard, you know, to put yourself into Fenduilas' shoes and say, hey, maybe that's my fate too. Yes, I see, I know that Turin, son of Hurin, you know, when his true name is revealed to her, I know that Turin, son of Hurin, is is cloaked in shadow. I know that there is darkness around him and that his fate is a dark one. But maybe there's hope. Um, But course she doesn't even really have hope because she doesn't believe that he will love her she she at the same time believes that their relationship is is destined not to happen go ahead brandon and even 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 when yeah i was just gonna say even when he i was just thinking when that name is revealed when when that is revealed he is from the line of Baron then. Yeah. And then, so then maybe Fendulus, maybe even then is like, great, that's even better news, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they definitely, they are, they are, they are kinsmen. Yeah, Dave, go ahead. So if, um, if Fendulus is indeed projecting the story of Baron and Luthien onto herself, she, I don't think she paid close enough attention when she learned the story because I think one of the lessons that we took away from it, at least you know, when, in our discussions of it, was that uh, part of the reason that Baron and Luthien triumphed was because they stuck together. Mm-hmm. 
uh, <clears throat> and indeed, uh, you know, you might blame the the blame sort of what happens on Turin and the fact that he didn't either didn't love Findulas back or he was too consumed with with his other endeavors to stick with her. But Baron tried to do that. He tried to leave Luthien behind like multiple times, mm -hmm. and every time she refused to to um, abide by that, and she came and pursued him and found him, and in the end confronted him and said, we're in this together, either you have a choice now, um, either abandon your quest and go off into exile or, or pursue it, um, but either way, I'm coming with you and our fate is joined together and we're sticking together. And so um, if indeed, you know, Finduras was looking and thinking like, hey, you know, maybe I'm the next Luthien, you would think that, that she would have come away with that lesson, that she needed to, to hunt Turin down and, and tell him. And, and Turin was reminded of this by Gwyndor as well, as, as people pointed out earlier, that you know, Gwyndor said, like, look, your, your only chance of avoiding your horrible fate based on the curse is, is in Finduas, and, and Turin ignores it. And Finduas also, for whatever her inscrutable reasons might have been, didn't wasn't proactive either, um, and people have already pointed that out that that was the major difference. But I was just thinking that she really didn't learn that that lesson from Luthien and Baron that that their strength came from um, banding together. And and you know we we pointed this out um, uh, with the the Noidied, uh that the elves there didn't band together. That um, I think it was Maedros wanted everybody wanted everybody to come together, and the most of the elves in Nardathons said, screw you, sons of Feanor, and the elves in um, Doriath didn't come, and they fell apart too because they didn't stick together. And So it seems like a lot of the people that suffer tragedy uh, don't, it's because they didn't take that lesson to heart or, or, or their comrades didn't, and they, they, you know, failed because of that. Right, and of course, um, you know, I feel compelled to point out we remember the one exception there, the one exception to the people of Nargothrond who said they refused to come and join with Mythros, Gwyndor. Gwyndor led the only small contingent from Nargothrond to the near Nyth Arnoidia. That's how he got himself captured and ended up then escaping and being found in the woods by Beleg when he was hunting Turin. So um, Gwyndor was the only elf of Nargothrond who answered the call uh, to go up. Okay, that doesn't knife. seem to support my point. Well, <laughs> no, but he, the, he, he does, when we see him here, he has changed. We see, you know, he has now jaded Gwyndor. Um, and, and of course, his, his own, um, yeah, not only is he physically changed, as we're told, by his time in Angband, but his whole attitude is different. I mean, he is the one who is really cynical um, in the midst of all this. Um, no, that's that's true, but I was just thinking the fact that he he perhaps is one of the few examples of someone that they probably would have been better off had he not been there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but perhaps, you know, perhaps maybe the real lesson is if Orodreth and the rest of Nargothron had been there, they might have been able to restrain him. So maybe maybe ultimately the real lesson there is 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 he went alone. If he had gone with his comrades, things would have turned down differently. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Jordan and, says Gwyndor turned into a hipster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, Gwyndor... Um, 
doesn't have any position from which to criticize people who rashly reveal themselves and rush forward into battle instead of staying prudently back in hiding, um, as of course, yes, he is the one who brought about the destruction, uh, ultimately, of the death of Fingon and the destruction of Fingon's host uh, in the near knife, because he's the one who le- leapt out and took the bait. Though, of course, sorely provoked uh, by the torture and murder of his brother, um, but nevertheless, uh, he was the one who rashly uh, ran forward. Now, there's a difference between what he did and what Turin is doing here. Um, With Gwyndor, it was not merely just pride that led him out in the way that Turin is simply now clearly seems to believe with the building of the bridge that there is no threat, that he can't, that they cannot be defeated. Um, he doesn't think that Morgoth can take him down in the field of battle. Um, and, uh, obviously that turns out to be, to be deeply untrue. Um, Brandon, did you have a, did you have a, a further thought? Yeah. Just a quick thing on Gwyndor, just, um, at the very end when he dies, don't remember, don't just recall his last words, um, hasty to Nagathon and save Fendulas, you know? So at the very end, he does believe in the myth. Right. He does believe in that, you know, maybe there is something bigger here. Yeah, and that's, you know, hid that prophecy at the end, that that moment when we are told, as we've discussed before, that Turin has a chance to avert his fate. It does seem like what averting his fate might look would look like, not might look like, would look like, would be a new Baron and Luthien story. That it is possible that the two of them could get together. Because remember, the reason it didn't happen before is not just because Lu- uh, uh, because um, Fendulas was not as good as Luthien. The reason it didn't happen, but the reason it hasn't happened already um, by that time is that Turin doesn't even pay attention. Fendulas thinks, oh, well, you know, he's not even going to notice me. He doesn't pay any attention. Why? Not because, you know, she isn't wonderful. I'm sure she has many fine qualities. He doesn't, because he doesn't pay any attention, because he's thinking only of himself. And he's, and he's just focused on himself and his own deeds and his own accomplishments. Um, and, you know, his own, you know, military strategy and whatever, he doesn't even notice that she's there. Um, so, you know, it's like Baron and Luthien, right? Instead of Baron standing there and seeing Luthien dancing before him and the, and then, you know, being so enthralled that he sort of pursues around and, like, can't rest until he finds her again, um, you know, here's Turin with sort of figuratively Finduilas dancing right there, and he's just not even paying attention. Um, but that... Um, as Brandon points out, that little glimmer, that little hint that we get um, of what might have happened, that that brief view of the possibilities for Turin, um, how this story might have had a happy ending. Well, I don't know exactly what it would have looked like and what they would have done and what the end of their story would have been. Would they have had some kind of major task to accomplish like Baron and Luthien? Um, uh, not the same one, presumably, but... Um, what would in fact have happened, we don't know, but it is, it would have been a Baron and Luthien story. It would have been the two of them together. He blew it by not noticing her. He blew it by not saving her. Um, that, that, again, if we're to believe Gwyndor, and I don't see any reason not to, that is in fact what should have happened, could have happened, almost happened. Um, but then of course, doesn't happen and everybody dies miserably. Um, Okay, so so we're just about out of time. 
Dave will get his wish again, and we will do another week on Tour and Tour and Bar. Next week, we will talk about what we still have talked almost not at all about, which is Glaurung the Dragon. I want to take, um, I want to take a a close look at Glaurung. Who is he? What does he do? What's his relationship with Morgoth? What's his relationship with the orcs? What's his plan and strategy? Um, you know, he puts a spell on Turin. He puts a spell on Neonor. Um, what is exactly is his plan? Um, his relationship with Nargothrond, his invasion of Brethel, and then of course, and of, of course, looking at the two major confrontations uh, between Turin and Glaurung, that is the one in Nargothrond and the second um, when Turin has already stabbed him. Um, so uh, we'll definitely look at Glaurung, and then I want to spend some time with Neonor. We've barely touched on Neonor, and she's clearly a very important figure, so we'll do Glaurung, we'll do Neonor, we'll look at, of course, at their uh, interactions, and then we will screw ourselves up to taking a close look at the... Uh, tragic end of the story and be thinking about, you know, and some of the big questions that you know, I want to, I know that you guys know these questions because you have our, uh, our, our class notes. Um, and not everybody does, but I want to come back to some of the big questions that you guys have been asking from the beginning. Um, and I'll just read a couple of them. Jason's question. Uh, this is, <clears throat> this is a story that's not mainly about elves. Why is it such a big deal in elf lore? Why are the elves so, 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 high on this story. Uh, similarly, Laura and Brandon were asking similar questions. Why is this the longest of the tales in the First Age? Well, you know, this is this is singled out as one of the greatest of all the stories of the First Age. Why? What do the why do the elves love this tragic tale? What value do they find in it? Um, I definitely want to be coming be coming back to that too. Um, so those those two questions I definitely want to end up with after we look at the end and the suicide. We need to talk about Anglachel again. I think we've touched on it with his identification as the Mormigil, but certainly when we get to the final uh the final dialogue, quite unexpected dialogue, um uh, it, it was. I remember how very surprised I was the first time I read this story. I wasn't surprised when he talked to his sword. That seemed a perfectly natural thing to do. But I was pretty surprised when his sword talked back. Um, so, uh, so we'll definitely uh, we will definitely want to be looking at Gurthang um, and the name change in the sword and everything too. Of course, Turin has so many names. Even his swords have multiple names. Um, so, those things will occupy us for next week. And I think we will have to sign off now. Um, thanks, uh, thanks very much, everybody. Yes, Dave is now taunting me with a transcript of the chat room quote where uh, he was uh, <laughs> taking credit uh, for uh, shoving us into another week. There, yes, yes, Dave wins again. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us. Thanks everyone who tuned in to the Middle Earth Network Radio to be with us tonight, and you can look forward to more tragedy next week, uh, as we will finally get we will certainly get through the end of the Tour and Tour and Bar story next week. Thanks very much, and good night. Well, the Silmarillionaires get their wish, and we will have one more episode to finish discussing the tragic tale of Turin Turinbar. Support groups are now forming in your area. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.